amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Have you ever been frightened by ghosts? Some say they need prayers to continue their journey towards heaven. But at my house, I have had so said visitors from the other side. Many times, to tell the truth, I believe these are good omens. They appear when least expected. One day while driving, I was tapped on the shoulder. One night, I was wakened to receive a message. Many more. But one thing that stands out, and it's the strangers of all, was someone was in my home and described a spirit they had seen, and it was a perfect description of my dad. She had never seen him before, so I believe he was welcoming her to the family. Last to say, I have a guardian angel. Have you heard the story of... <laughs> The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Tonight's and I were goodies are given to ghouls, goblins, and ghosts. And for every trick-or-treater and non-trick-or-treater alike, for those with a kid or the monster in all of us. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest, and the living and the dead could come in. Time where the dead can come alive again. The dead is nothing we have to be afraid of. it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to our fourth and final Halloween episode. Are you so spooked? You all look very scared. Have you been going to the bridge to look for the headless horseman? Have you been ringing doorbells and asking for candy? Have you been checking all the Halloween decorations for pulses? Well, then you've been a loyal listener and we're so proud of you. Good job, guys. Good job. That's really what we're going for. Trying to make responsible Halloween citizens of us all. But we do want to thank you all for coming back and encourage you to rate and review the show. Mm-hmm. Reach out to us on Twitter at Just a Story Pod uh, through email, Just a Story Pod at gmail.com. Or you could try our new Instagram, which we have. It's a thing. I'm working on it. And that's also Just a Story Pod. Or if you're feeling very industrious, you can call us on the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. Yeah, we'd love to hear the urban legends you grew up with, things you're interested in, things you might want us to cover on the show. Yes, we've done a few so far, and we're going to do a few more soon, uh, just as soon as we get this month of spooky spectral magic out of the way. Speaking of a month of spooky spectral magic. Oh, tell me, tell me. You know, since we are concluding our series on Halloween-themed urban legends, I thought we can really look at the idea of Halloween. I've never thought of looking into the history of something before. It's a new idea. I know. How novel. 
And, you know, Halloween, especially in America. America, you say? Which is where we are. Is it? I thought we were in Texas. Yeah. Haven't we seceded yet? They're always trying to do that. I've blocked it out. But to look at Halloween in America, in the United States, is to really look at American folk tradition as a whole. That's true, because everyone has customs surrounding mourning and death and celebrations of life. Every culture. And we've kind of brought them all together and commercialized them in a cute package and made Halloween. That's so American. So American. So American. And, you know, one of the quintessential things that is associated with Halloween are ghosts and ghost stories. Ooh, tell me more. Tell me more. When did that start? Where did that come from? I'm all ears. Well, if you look through the history of Halloween over the centuries and really millennia, there are some major themes that run through it. And that can be communing with the dead. Okay, so that's, we get our ghosties here. Ghosties, also divination. Okay, so the divination is using practical items, some sort of medium to tell the future. A divination usually has to do with chance and like drawing lots, cards, other forms of like concrete items. And also there's often an association with fire. That's fire, that's hot. (laughs) Thanks for clearing that up. That's what I'm here for, clarification. Don't touch it. Just look. You play with fire, you'll pee in the bed. An urban legend we'll get to one day. Um, okay. Whatever you say, boss. So we can trace back a lot of the Halloween traditions we think of today to the Druid tradition of Samhain. So Samhain was a communal feast that was celebrated during fall, dedicated to the Celtic Lord of the Dead. Who was... Samhain. Okay. And he would come about and judge the dead. And he would take the bad people. The bad dead people. Yes. Okay. And they would have to suffer death for the next year as lowly animals. Okay. And the good people would get to live the next year as dead, but they would be able to take the form of humans. Okay. So this is like... The equivalent of backpacking around Europe before grad school for dead people. Like, they're just kind of taking a year off. They're, like, taking a year to contemplate, like, what they want to do with their afterlife. You know, trying to come to terms with the idea that they need to move on. It's really exactly the same. Sure, yeah, okay. (sighs) To the Celtic people, this was a very important holiday. They would often put out food to appease these spirits, but also to invite their ancestors home. They want ghosties? Well, they want their ancestors to come back. You know, the good people that they miss. You know, they're celebrating the idea of their ancestors. Okay. But there are the other spirits that can come back too, because at this time is when that spiritual world and the human world are the closest. When the veil is the thinnest? Yes. Okay. Well, that's an idea we've held on to. So the veil's thin, and I'm guessing everybody is ready for their annual judging with Samheim. And so the dead would rise, the ancestral spirits, but also demons would come out to roam the earth, and they could cause trouble. So like I said, sometimes they'd prepare food for them to appease them. Um, sometimes they would dress in ghoulish costumes to try to trick the spirits, especially the malicious spirits, from knowing who they were, thinking they were, oh, they're just other spirits. We'll just keep going. Yeah, that was a big thing 
for yeah. a long time was like spiritual camouflage. Yeah, which is one of my favorite ideas ever. It definitely was, and they would also sometimes form parades of okay. people in ghoulish costumes and go out of town to lead the spirits past that threshold. Oh, it's very Sleepy Hollow, isn't it? Right. The spirit could not enter the town. Right. Thresholds and whatnot. And at this time, divination was very powerful. Again, that thinning of the veil, that invisible world being closer. You were able to commune with the dead, and they had knowledge. Insight into your future. Exactly. That you were not aware of. Because they're on a different plane of existence, and time probably works a little differently there. So divination would be particularly powerful. So you'd get particularly accurate readings of what were they used for divination? Well, they'd use a lot of different things. There was another festival at this time called the Festival of Taman, and it was to the life-giving sun god Baal. At that time, there was a lot of fear that the sun could go away during the winter and never come back. Short-term memory loss. Well, it came back last year because you appeased the gods. Oh, okay. Magical thinking is so much fun. Got it. All right. So it only came back last year because we did this. Right. So we're going to do it again. So we're going to light bonfires. To remind him of what we're looking for. We're going to sacrifice things. To make him happy. Yes. And how do you think we'd sacrifice them? On the fire. Of course. Fire. It's hot. (laughs) And we could sacrifice people. Oh, we shouldn't, though. Oh, <laughs> we, no, we man, that's, that's highly frowned upon. Not well, endorse it. Just a story podcast does not endorse human sacrifice. That's not what you said last night. Ah, well. <laughs> or horses. And this is where that idea of the Wicker Man comes from. Like the movie with Nicolas Cage? That was a remake. <laughs> I know. It's a Burning Man. I'm sure there was some orgiastic aspect to this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there was, too. So... They'd make like a big man out of kindling, basically, and insert sacrifice here. And so they would divinate things from the entrails of these people or horses. Of their sacrifices? Yes. That seems very potent. Right? You've got the power of a dead person or creature on this day that's close to the powers of the sun. Right, and it's that elemental firepower kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I can see where you would get some really clear readings from that. Not that we endorse it, don't do that. And these ideas stuck around for a while. Even in the Middle Ages, people were burning cats in wicker cages. You don't endorse that either, but not so much people anymore. We're kind of over the people thing. Yeah. Okay. Burn less people. Well, for that purpose. Burn burn right, plenty of people. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of witches. And so, you know, T.G.E. Powell has this great quote about all of these ancient festivities. It was the night of its eve was the great occasion in the year where the temporal world was thought to be overrun by the forces of magic. Magical troops issued from caves and mounds. Individual men might even be received into their realms. Whilst against the royal strongholds, assaults by flame and poison were attempted by monsters. So this is a very true communion with the dead this is seeking their knowledge this is seeking the connection with them this is seeking that sort of isolated experience that they have relegated to this day which is very interesting psychologically because it is definitely a mechanism for coping with the idea of death and mortality right you're able to celebrate your ancestors and 
kind of mourn them as well. I think that's a theme we're going to see throughout this episode is this combination of letting loss be loss and letting it be sad, but rejoicing in life. Right. Such an important aspect of the human condition, really. So as things happen, as time moves on, Christianity comes around and just pokes things. Don't tell me we're going to lose this hedonistic orgy spirit we've got going on. I'm reading my cat guts. I've got my wicker statues built. I'm loving this ball lighting I've got going on. Waiting on Samhain to come and judge the dead. Got your costume. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my ancestors are all armadillos, but whatever. I'm fine with it. Let's party. And the Christians are coming and they're going to just join the party, right? Well, kind of, okay, actually. Cool. You know, the Christians kind of do that. They're really big in a cultural appropriation. We, yeah, I'm okay. You know, as we've talked about before on other episodes, like the Christmas episode a million years ago, Christians were very big, and of course this is the Catholics, were very big on taking pagan rituals and kind of assimilating them into the Catholic idea of things. Right, it made it easier for people to transition to that faith that they could hold on to their traditions. Right. And so we have something called All Saints Day established. Okay. And it's actually established very early on in the church, but not associated with the dates and with the kind of Samhain traditions that later it comes to be associated with. So it's established in 610, but it was reestablished, kind of rechristened in the 8th century by Pope Gregory III, and he said it on November 1st on purpose. To be near the old festival of Samhain. This feast day was kind of extended and revamped to include all of the kind of local saints. Okay, so all saints that apply to you. Because each church at that time had its like local saints okay. that they would talk about and that they would pray to like almost their ancestors each church had its set of ancestors it's culture that it would go back to and learn from and look at so this is the time where we get that idea of like the soul cakes and the begging and the praying that we talked about on the trick-or-treat episode and the mardi gras episode true Mm -hmm. (laughs) and people would masquerade at this time okay would they what would they dress as um they're just as devils. Okay. And angels. Okay. And saints, their favorite saint. Oh. Which people still do that. No, they don't. Yeah. Yes. No. At some of the school at some Catholic schools. Oh, okay. Fine. Fair. They're on, weird anyway. <laughs> yeah, there. Especially in Louisiana, it's a personal experience. People would dress as their favorite saint on All Saints Day and give like a little presentation. Did and you dress was, as a saint? I didn't. It was some of the other schools. Oh, okay. Damn. So on these days, they would display the relics of the saints. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, relics are pieces of saint body. That's right. Blessed by the church and used for magic. Pretty much. See the mummies episode. (laughs) I think it's called the perverse and the preserved. And they would also light bonfires. Again with the fire. Right. They were incorporating these old pagan ideas, but this was used to keep the devil away. Okay, instead of inviting Ball to come and give them sun, they were just trying to keep old Cad, the devil, at bay. So instead of an invitation, it moves to a warning. So you had All Hallows Day established on November 1st, and so the day before All Hallows Day was... Hallows Eve. Sound familiar? Halloween. That's right. 
I can word. So we have All Saints Day. And those are those highfalutin people who didn't do much wrong while they were alive. But then we have All Souls Day, which is basically Festivus for the rest of us, early edition. Right, and so that's the day after All Hallows or All Saints Day. So that's going to be on November 2nd. And it was established as a feast day in 993 by a Benedictine abbot named Odillo of Cluny. And it was based on a passage from Maccabee. He made an atonement for the dead so that they might be set free from their sin. I guess is that again that idea that people are sitting in purgatory. Purgatory and, is such a thing. And they're waiting for all the people on earth to pray for them and they're atoning for their sins so they can go up and be in heaven and sing with harps and things. And there's an old folk version of the origin of this idea. And it's a story about a pilgrim who was returning from the Holy Land. And the story goes that he was shipwrecked on an island. And he met a hermit. Wise old hermit. A wise old hermit who came down from his mountain. I don't know if you're a hermit if you're just like alone on an island by accident. I think you're a castaway technically. Not if you decided to be there. Okay. Maybe he was put there. It's all very alarming. Okay, so the hermit comes down from his mountain. And then the hermit says that he heard the groans of the tormented souls coming from a huge flaming gorge. So, I mean... If a hermit tells you a story like that, what are you going to do? Make purgatory and make everyone pay for it for the rest of eternity. That sounds like a great idea. That sounds very Catholic. (laughs) My Catholic bells are ringing. Oh, Catholic bells have made their return. Joy, joy, joy. So yeah, this hermit's responsible for like a lot of shit, apparently. But he must have been a very credible hermit because it sticks. So November 2nd is definitely established as All Souls Day as a result of this hermit telling the shipwrecked pilgrim a story about groans. Tormented souls from a fiery gorge. Wow, that sounds so much better when you say it that way. Right? Okay, fine, fine. Okay. Yeah, so we have All Hallows Eve, October 31st, November 1st, All Hallows, hollow meaning holy, All Saints Day. And we have All Souls Day on November 2nd. And these three days combined equal... Holomas. So Holomas is a three-day celebration of death. All the dead people. All the dead people. So then we get to the medieval version of Halloween. So this takes different forms in different geographic regions. In the British Isles, there was a lonely bell ringer who walked the streets to warn that ghosts were on the way. And of course, there's a lonely bell ringer in Britain. It was a foggy night. Walking along the cobbled streets, ringing his bell, warning of the tormented souls from the fiery gorge. Uh, or it's some guy going, hey, I know you're having fun, but we probably shouldn't get too excited because the ghosts are coming, but keep calm. Keep calm, carry on. Keep calm, carry on. Ghosts are coming. And they would carve... It's really hard for me to acknowledge that this ever happened. I'm a little embarrassed for history right now. They would carve turnips. Why is that worse than pumpkins? It's so much worse. If you look up the images of these old carved out turnips, they are quite frightening because they have much more of a like bony color to them. Yeah, but they're wimpy little vegetables. They're tubers. They grow underground. Okay, that's probably creepier because they're like dead bodies. All right, I'm warming up to the turnip. Anyway, they carve out turnips and put candles inside. And that was like the original version of the jack-o'-lantern. And they'd put them on gateposts to ward off evil spirits because... 
this time we're getting a lot more evil spirits than good, right? The demons are coming. The demons are coming. All the good spirits are up in heaven. Oh, right. So keep calm and ring your bell and carve your turnip. So people claimed that they could hear the devil playing castanets made of dead man's bones. I love that imagery. I do too. It actually reminds me of uh, God that song Billy the Devil and Billy Markham. Oh, the devil's always playing an instrument. Oh yeah. <laughs> See episode Deal with the Devil. Deal with the Devil. Hearth fires were lit again. Demons are coming. And but then you have Spain. And Spain has a little more panache, I guess, a little more What's Spanish for je ne sais quoi? But Spain is a little bit more creative, they get a little more festive, and they decide to make, they make little cakes, and they call them Bones of the Holy, because it's fun to eat bone cake. It's like making the little breast cakes. For St. Agatha's Day. And in Salerno, Italy, banquets were prepared, because the Italians, they know how to do. They would prepare banquets to be left out for the dead. Yes, so we have Again, the continuation of these old traditions. We have the food being laid out. We have the souls coming back. We have the hearth fires being lit. We have this kind of mystical being, the devil, sometimes coming back. To judge or to take or to wreak havoc of some sort. But my question about the banquets in Italy is, were they left out for bad spirits? Was it just an appeasement? Thing, or was it right it was left out as an appeasement if the food was still there the next day it was a sign of bad luck or that your mama don't know how to cook i don't know homeless people are like nah nah <laughs> nah i'm going over to the salvadoria's house <laughs> they make a mean meatball <laughs> <laughs> that's a spicy meatball so again we have another big old shift in religious ideas as time moves on keep calm carve your turnip the devil's coming. No worries. And on Halloween, Martin Luther. We all know and love Martin Luther and all of his theses. And nails a little piece of paper. Tiny, itty bitty piece of paper. To an insignificant door. Yeah, just not a big deal. Just putting some thoughts up here. And starts the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, he kind of does that with just a little piece of paper. So when he nails his paper to the door, he kind of list his grievances with the Catholic Church, and they are numerous. So while he's put lots of bullet points on his list, a lot of his major gripes have to do with like the pageantry and the idolatry and the kind of pagan roots of a lot of the celebrations and feast days within the Catholic Church. This is a major issue for Martin Luther. Right, and one of the big feast days that has pagan roots is this is Holomas days. So what does Martin Luther say about Holomas? No mas. Nine. Right, so those traditions were very quickly pushed out. Done away with. We don't want them anymore. Take your turnips and go, good sir. Good day, turnips. I said good day. But then... Lo, out of the staunch Reformation comes a valiant hero. Okay, I don't know if you call him that. A revolutionary. That's true. A man with a plan. A plot. A plot. A gunpowder plot, no less. <sighs> Please to remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Right, so the gunpowder plot was a huge turning point in the conflict between the Catholics and Protestants in Britain. 
Guy Fox. A V for Vendetta fame. Yes, that's where he's from. Okay, he may have predated the Natalie Portman movie just a bit. And or maybe even the comic. Maybe even the Alan Moore. Maybe novel. even that. Guy Fox was a Catholic revolutionary, and he was part of a plot, along with several other Catholic revolutionaries, to blow up Parliament. Which would not have gone well. Right. They felt that the House of Lords was very Protestant sympathetic. And so he had been stashing gunpowder in the basement and was planning on blowing it up on November 5th of 1605. He stashed all of this. The plane was almost done. And as he went to light it, he no. was caught. Oh, that's too close. He was so close. So close to killing hundreds of people. Oh, guys, so close, so close. So 5th of November, obviously, because we remember, remember from earlier, is Guy Fawkes Day. Right, Guy Fawkes Day. So and he, he was, was a dirty Catholic. Ah, uh, dirty Catholic. Dirty Catholic, and the Protestants caught him before he did his dirty Catholic de- deeds. And so we're going to celebrate this forever because we won, right? If we're Protestant. Pretty much. Okay. So, I mean, he was, of course, arrested and executed. Summarily. Yes, with many of his Catholic conspirators. That day was declared a national day of Thanksgiving. It was used as a celebration of the triumph of Protestants over Catholics. Because they caught the guy before he lit the gunpowder? Pretty much. All right. We'll take it. I think it's just because they could come up with a really good rhyme to go with it. Please remember. And so... They used a lot of Halloween traditions in the Guy Fawkes Day celebrations. You know, a lot of people know about the burning of the effigies of Guy Fawkes. Right. Which they also would burn like effigies of the Pope and other other fun things. People who were equally likely to explode their way of life. Right. And they would have, they would use the turnip lanterns. Oh, again, we pulled those bad boys out. Yeah. I mean, that's such a cool idea. You got to retcon that. And it became a night of mischief. Because they were just giddy from catching this one guy before he lit the gunpowder. Right. And I think it was the idea of like it was this kind of subversive plot. Kind of a, yeah, I can see that. So we're going to reappropriate that and make our own mischief on this night to celebrate the fact that it didn't happen. Well, you know, it's to celebrate, oh, we Protestants are better. (laughs) And people would dress in costumes and kids would go around asking for coal Begging for things. Why would they want coal? To light their effigies. Fun! (laughs) By fun, I mean horrifying. Could you please spare some coal, sir? I'd like to light the Pope on fire. Oh, right. And they would have, there were great lines to poems that would go by the same rhyme pattern as Remember, Remember the 5th of November, asking for the piece of coal to burn their effigy. So they'd burn Guy Fawkes in effigy. Right, so there are definitely some origins uh, of trick-or-treating here. You know, also origins in the past. We talked about with the All Saints Day, their origins with the costuming and and going around town. As we talked about the trick-or-treating episode, they're not necessarily direct links, but the idea has always been associated with this. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. So, I don't know if you know this, but I paid attention in history class, and I know that the Pilgrims protestants and i know that they were people so uptight that the english kicked them out very impressive right and i know that they came to america and i think that's right yeah right and something about plymouth and smallpox blankets i don't know but they came to america killing indigenous people indigenous people whatever get out of the way 
And they may or may not have brought that tradition with them. Did they do? Did they do it? Did they do it? Well, so they definitely did not, at least the Puritans, bring the Halloween traditions because they were so uptight, such staunch Protestants. that They were not bringing that pagan shit over to the United States. I mean, witches, sure, but not, not this no, pagan no, 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 stuff. No, they didn't mean to bring the witches. The witches, the witches came later. Right. From the woods. And the devil. And the devil. And Black Philip. Black Philip. We're going to do that every episode. <laughs> Go watch The Witch. It's amazing. So, right. In the U.S., you had these new colonies forming. And the first colonies were Puritans. While they did not celebrate Halloween, because it was this dirty pagan ritual. Right. Dirty Catholics, dirty yeah. pagans, uh, dirty... Just all of it. Terrible. All of it. They did still celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. Right, that was the one I was talking about, because I knew that they'd be happy about any kind of Protestant victory, because they were so pleased to be Protestant, which is a fragrance you can purchase from Mayflower United. It smells like milk and honey. And genocide. Anyway, (laughs) but as the United States continued to form, you know, they didn't have any new ideas. They didn't have their own legends. They didn't have their own myths. They didn't have their own traditions right well i think what you mean is they didn't have their any old ideas well any old ideas that are associated with their new place right and that's where we get washington irving desperately trying to again retcon some quick legends you know just trying to build a mythological history just out of the ether Right, so they did continue to celebrate Guy Fawkes Day for a little while during the american revolution they would burn stamp man effigies because of the Stamp Act, we were not pleased about this. This is one of the, we're not going to take it, twisted sister moments in the American Revolution. Yes. D.D. Snyder and George Washington were founding fathers. BFFs! Don't listen to us about these things. <laughs> Don't put that in your paper. Stop. <laughs> Do draw it. Draw it all day. <laughs> but as America began to create traditions and have heroes such as the creation of the founding fathers myth which we should so do an episode on we're gonna do a founding fathers series you don't know it yet but i may have been subversively scripting without you oh good but that was a myth that was created well we needed it right and as we created those heroes you can't have a national identity without heroes no we have to have them we have to have the brave soldier those replace these old british ideas and the ideas of guy fox day and these other celebrations receded and one paper from the time says the observances have dwindled to horn blowing and the care <laughs> and the carrying about of pumpkin lanterns by boys the origin of the celebration is quite forgotten when you said dwindled to horn blowing i picture like one sad old guy like <laughs> hey kids uh let's come burn this effigy and they're like what the hell's an effigy <laughs> And we talked about the Thanksgiving Day celebrations and those begging traditions that definitely get incorporated into the Halloween idea. But other than that, there's really no mention of Halloween in the New England colonies. Because the Puritans, hell no, no pagans. And another idea, and this is something we touched on in Sleepy Hollow episode, the Headless Horseman episode, is that the idea of Halloween... And these traditions are based on you know, your respect for the ancestral dead, for your place, for the legends that you grew up with. You know, as a new people in a new land, our dead were kind of elsewhere. Our ancestors were back across the ocean. They had no tie to the place, right? 
as did the colonists. They did not have a tie to this place yet. So they may have been rebels in their own right. Like They may have rebelled against the teachings of their fathers and mothers and their ancestors. They may have gone a new way. Well, they kind of did because they made their own way. So maybe there's not the same respect for the people who came before them because they're striking out on their own. They're very much having their teenager moment when they're like, I know best. And they're doing what's right. Right. They're coming and farming this city on the hill. That went well. Sometimes. But you do have other immigrants besides the Puritans to the United States. I didn't know if you knew that. I do know that because my people are not Puritans. Your people are not Puritans. Oh, no. But oh, we, no. but neither of our people came to the original United States. My people have been here since 1714. Your people have been here since time immemorial. In some areas, especially in Pennsylvania, you had a lot of German immigrants. So these were Lutherans and Catholics. And the Lutherans still celebrated a lot of the feast days that the Catholics did. And you also had the Pennsylvania Dutch. From the Netherlands. From Germany. What? This weird misnomer. <laughs> and the Pennsylvania Dutch, which were Germans. <laughs> okay, well, let me get my mind around that and we'll keep going. They brought a lot of folk traditions over. Volk traditions? That's right. What did they bring with them? Well, they brought about a lot of supernatural ideas. One of those interesting ones I just wanted to mention because I didn't realize it until researching this episode, but it ties in with the Sleepy Hollow stuff again is the German powwow men. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's cultural appropriation at its finest. Is it? I don't know. So it's really not, actually. It's kind of like a thriller in the Cajun tradition where they're like spiritual healers. Okay. And they were still tied to that Christian Catholic traditions. They would still like read from the Bible. They would pray over things. But they felt that they were supernaturally empowered with psychic and magical powers. You could heal, you could divination... We even do a little black magic. This is sounding so much like voodoo and Santeria. There's that idea of folk healers in every culture. Right. In Sleepy Hollow, they mentioned the old German doctor. I didn't know what the hell that was. <laughs> when I read it, I was like, and then when we were researching this episode, I was like, uh. So you believe that the old German doctor. Is a German powwow man. Which is so much more interesting. Right? He's incorporating these other ideas of other cultures into this new idea, this new legend that he's building up for America. He's building it up for America, for the country, for us to have a past. He's using his imagination to create a meaningful past. Right. Put that on a t-shirt or a pillow. As you do. So, of course, there were other immigrants as well. To the early United States, including the Scottish, who had a lot of similar ideas to the Celtic and British ideas of Halloween. And they would guise. Disguise? Yes. Okay. And go begging. And they would dress as skecklets. I'm sorry. Skecklets? I'm sorry. That's my new favoritest word in the whole of the world. Right, so it's just a word meaning like spirits. You know, they would dress as the kind of things people have been dressing as. But God, it's more fun than that, right? I love it. Let's be skecklets. Of course, in the southern colonies, you had Irish immigrants. Mm-hmm. You had Anglican immigrants. Okay, which the Church also, of England. Right, also like the Lutheran Church, celebrated a lot of feast days. The Catholics did. Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, they really just wanted Henry VIII to get his divorce, and they didn't care about the rest. Well, growing up Catholic, people would always call it Diet Catholic. Yeah, I quite enjoy that. 
and of course all the african-american traditions that were brought over with the slaves which we'll get to in a second but one group of people that came over that brought about a lot of interesting traditions that really tie into Halloween were the Irish. Okay, and they came over because of the potato famine. I've seen that statue in Boston and wept. You mean the most depressing thing I've literally in person seen in my life? Yes, that one. If you forget why the Irish came over, we'll make you go stare at that statue for eight hours. All right, so literally hundreds of thousands of immigrants came over in the 19th century from Ireland. Okay. Bringing over a lot of the Celtic traditions. So that we get back to that Samhain idea here, right? You know, the Celtics have this great, rich folklore tradition. I mean, everyone loves to talk about the fairies and the pixies and the will of the wisps. And something that ties into that are jack-o'-lanterns. Turnips! Originally. Keep calm, carve your turnip. Well, and it's funny, in one of the books we read for this, The History of Halloween in America, which is an excellent resource, you know, they have a bunch of quotes about how excited people were about the pumpkins to use instead of turnips because they were just so fantastic looking, which they are. They really are, but now I think if somebody put out a turnip, everyone would be so fascinated with it. I'm sure there's a hipster somewhere. Somewhere in Brooklyn burns bright a turnip. Or South Austin. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, fair. Maybe we'll see a turnip this year. Ooh. Ooh. They came up with a lot of ideas for the mysterious lights that they would see in the bogs, which okay. we now know are all swamp gas. Shh. I mean, spirits. Right. Some people thought they were, like I said, spirits, goblins freed from the dead, will-of-the-wisps. Some people call them corpse candles. Which is... Amazing. And, I love that term. And such a good name. And some people call them jack-o'-lanterns. Okay. And so there is a lovely folk story about the origin of the jack-o'-lantern. So there was this miserly old man named Jack. A miserly old man named Jack, you say. You gonna repeat everything else? I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to um, do it in my spooky voice. Ooh. Ooh. And this is a great story of tricking the devil. Which is something that is so adopted in country music. And so this miserly old man, Jack, he tricked the devil into turning himself into a sixpence. And this man quickly picks the sixpence up and puts it in his pocket. So he has the devil in his pocket. That's right. And he makes the devil promise that he will not come back for an entire year to collect his soul, and he will set him free. The devil agrees, because he's a bargaining man. All right. He sees when he's on the wrong side of a bargain. Shrewd. He says, fine. Goes away. Comes back in a year. Jack again tricks him into climbing up a tree to pick this beautiful apple. And as he's climbing up the tree, Jack quickly carves a cross into the trunk. So the devil cannot come down. Correct. Ha! Jack's sharp. So this time he realizes, man, maybe a year wasn't long enough. And he makes the devil promise that he will not come back for 10 years for his soul. I like where he's going with this. Right, he's a bargaining man. But here's your problem. Here's your loophole. Jack dies shortly after, long before the 10 years are up. He goes up to heaven. St. Peter's like, you're a dick. (laughs) You miserly old man. You didn't give Crotchet off (laughs) for Christmas. And you are not allowed in heaven. So Jack's soul wanders down to hell. And the devil says, you can't come in here. And anyway, you made me promise that I could not collect your soul for 10 years. What's a soul to do, Jacob? So he was sentenced to walk the earth forever with only a lantern made from a carved turnip and one coal from hell to guide him. 
That is so metal. Right? (laughs) It's actually so country music, but yeah, whatever. (laughs) So we get a lot of traditions, a lot of ideas from several different cultures that are brought over to the United States. But they start to become very secularized. As in separated from the official feast days of the church. Right, and a lot of these ideas were incorporated into like harvest festivals and harvest parties and things called play parties. Um, sorry? Not that kind of play party. Okay. Well, now that we've established that they're not that kind of play party, I feel free to tell you that they do have a lot to do with romance. 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 So Halloween became like a time of matchmaking. And what's a girl to do but bring back divination? And what's more fun than cat guts? Pretty much anything. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that was used. Anything but cat guts. That's your opinion. No, I really did use anything but cat guts. Says it on the invitation. Please leave your cat guts at home. Yeah. BYOB, please leave your cat guts at home. I see you've been reading my mail. So at these parties, there would be things like dancing. No. Yes. To the devil's music? No, no. Gosh, for heaven's sakes. We're not heathens. There's no fiddle. The devil's instrument? Yeah. Fiddle is the devil's instrument. Have it on good authority. Like that Panini played? Oh my God. Aganini. But anyway, see the episode. Deal with the devil. So, because we can't have a fiddle, what is one to do? Play castanets made from the dead man's bones. I think those are also the devil's instrument. Fine. Fine. So, we do something much more American. What's that? We start stomping and hollering in a barn, y'all. Oh, that does sound very American. It's American. This is the origin of the square dance. So the collar and the stomping and the all of that. And the dancing and several partners. Play parties. So we bring back divination with everything except cat guts during this time. The veil is thinner. I mean, that's just a fact. And we get the spirits from the Celtic traditions. And in Catholic traditions, we can solicit help from the devil, which I really don't think is sanctioned. Oh, no. But it is possible at this time of year. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Once or twice. So we do divination with things like apples. Seems to be a recurring theme. Devil's fond of apples. And we use nuts. And there are several different ways to do this. So we get like bobbing for apples where the names of the people attending the party would be attached to the stems. The apples would be floated in a tub of water on a rolling table. It's tricky. It's tricky. So then you get people trying to get the apples out of the water. Caveat, can't use your hands. Have to use your mouth. Play party. So whenever you get your apple out of the rolling tub of water without drowning, if you drown, doesn't count. But if you manage to do this, whoever's name is attached to the stem of your apple will be your future husband. You better buy the right apple. Oh, play parties. It's like a key party. It is like a key party. Because this was a big time of matchmaking. Yeah, absolutely. So this matchmaking taking place, you know, in that fall time, the harvest time, right before you had the winter coming. Right, which is baby making weather. Someone to warm your bed. So that's one way you could use apples. Another way was to peel an apple and try to get the peel off in one long curly cue like not make a bunch of cuts but take it off in a spiral and then you would throw the apple peel over your shoulder and it would land in the shape of the initial the first initial of the person that you would marry so if your name was like oscar you were gold 
You had your pick of ladies. You might have thought your parents saddled you with a bad name, but you just didn't know. And I actually remember reading the Little House on the Prairie books when I was a kid, and Laura Ingalls Wilder and her sister did this. And I remember being like just very intrigued and wanting to do it. And my mom wouldn't let me use a knife. So it goes. So it goes, Jacob. Too bad my name's not Oscar. Too bad. The nuts, the way you use nuts is you would assign a nut to a specific person. And you would put all of the nuts in a pan. And whichever nut popped first would be your true love. So he'd be like, no, wait, wait, that wasn't Oscar. That was Sam. That was Sam. It was not Oscar. I'm pretty sure. And Oscar's sitting there like drumming his fingers together like a bad TV villain. (laughs) They're all mine for the taking. But one of my favorites was this tradition of walking backward down a stairwell while holding a candle and a mirror and waiting for your true love to appear in the mirror. Walking backwards downstairs in the dark, like a in the dark, idea. terrible, idea. in the dark with yeah. both hands yeah. occupied. So I think what was actually happening is your life was flashing before your eyes. <laughs> but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Also, if you brush your hair three times in the dark in front of a mirror with a candle, you'll see the face of your true love floating behind you. This is something you did, right? I did do this when I was a kid. I did not see anything. It was very disappointing. You didn't see my gorgeous face? I Maybe I did, but I just ignored it. I just kept brushing. Maybe another one will come. Not that bastard. <laughs> no, I can tell he's bad news. So interestingly, this was the way that Halloween was depicted during this era. It was this time of singles parties and get-togethers and courting and matchmaking and divination about your future love. And it was all very slumber party. And so, like, if you look back on antique postcards for Halloween, you'll see a ton of these. Like, with people bobbing for apples or pulling cake pieces and somebody gets a charm, very king cake, baby in the king cake sort of thing. They'll be the next to be married. But these are the images of Halloween from this era. And one of them had a poem on it that I want to share with you. And it says, a happy Halloween. He is your fate, whose face you've seen in the mirror's face on Halloween. And you didn't, you didn't see mine. No, I, I didn't, honey. I'm sorry. One that I read about that they did at this time was called a dumb supper. Okay. You have to think what dumb meant then. Oh, dumb. Can't speak. Right. So it was another form of divination related to matchmaking. So where unmarried women would cook meals in complete silence. I feel like there's a really sexist joke to be made there. So many, and don't do it, Donald. Keep going. Then they would eat in silence and wait for the spirit of their future husband to come into the room. Wait, how could they marry someone who is dead? Right? I think that's interesting. Like A spirit could come even though it's still a live person. But you see things like this in like the witch trials and when people are giving testimony and and things of that nature, where they cite that the ghost of a living person came to them in the night and did things, or they saw the ghost of that person with the devil. Right, people could, like, astrally project. (laughs) Before it was cool. Hipster astral projection. But there's this one great account of it from the turn of the last century. It's the woman saying, All the lights were low, and we sat there by ourselves. Nobody but me and this girl, just waiting for people to come in. Just at 12 o'clock, the wind commenced to blow. And it blew a gate, and the lights were flickering, and we were both scared. 
expecting something to come in. And Pap, well, he had an old horse. And she came and poked her head in the door. And I swear, we like tore that house down getting out of there. We like to broke the door down. Sounds like a mom. I know, I love it. I love the idea. Just like, they were so caught up in this. I can just see this happening today. But this does lead to that idea of ghosts and spirits that we've been talking about being a huge part of these Halloween and harvest traditions. As we saw in the account from Sleepy Hollow, you had a movement uh, from the parties and the dancing and the divination and all these things to leading to ghost stories. Which are war stories, which are stories of heroes and ancestors that give you a sense of place and history. Exactly. Because as Dr. James George Fraser says, it's a universal human trait to bring the dead back through the telling of stories. Just as it's universal to associate tales with community gatherings. I could sit with that thought all day. It's a great idea that we're going to keep telling these ghost stories because, and especially at this time, you know, ghost stories have changed throughout the centuries. It was always about ancestors. It was about where we came from, about the past. And so incorporating that into these harvest celebrations was incorporating our past, our ancestors, into that celebration. And I think it's significant that this is a a time of bounty, a time of plenty before the hard winters when we're really looking back at who got us this far. That's part of being thankful is looking at the people who've come before you. Right. And as we've talked about, like in the Campfire Tales episode, sitting around a campfire, sitting around a hearth fire, a bonfire, trying to ward off the devil, you're sharing those stories. You're uniting the community. You're passing along information. And that's very important. It's very important about who we are as humans, building a culture. And one really important aspect, especially that you and I grew up with, is the African-American contribution to these ideas of ghost stories and ancestors into the American identity. And the form of that type of folklore that I'm most familiar with and most heavily studied in is definitely Vodun culture and the folklore that's associated with it. And this is an African practice. So in this unique tradition... The dead visit their old homes for a few hours after midnight. However, if they didn't return to their graveyard by 2 a.m., they were shut out and forced to wander the earth. And this is a great example of that kind of folkloric heritage from Vudan. And that's the idea that the ancestral dead and that spiritual world are right there. Right, your neighbors. Interactive. You can interact with them at any time. That's key. And they can interact with you. Yes, also key. And you see there is a very prevalent idea in West African culture of this sort of appeasement. And it's something you'll see repeated in a lot of modern interpretations of African-American culture that have been kind of consciously formed in recent years. And one of those major tenets is the idea of libations, which is a serious rite within Vodan and all of its children, all of its offshoots. And what that is, is the pouring out of spirits, not those spirits, liquor spirits, for the dead. And that's a major component of a lot of rituals. 
Right, because you have to make them happy because they can come back at any time and do whatever they want to you. They are now more powerful than you because they don't have a body anymore. And they know more about what's going on. They have a closer connection with the spiritual realm where the powers are kept, where the... I don't want to say God. I mean, I'll say, I guess they are Loa, where the Loa are, where the sources of power are. And they can move about more freely and make more mischief. In West Africa, there's also just this idea in general that extends from that ritualistic practice of the libations or pouring out the spirits for the dead that is more of a general idea where the dead are just provided with things that they like. You get things like palm wine and banana beer. Interestingly... As it made its way across the ocean, the substance has changed. In different areas, you'll see different things for the ancestral spirits. And in New Orleans, where they practice voodoo, which is its own thing. Not voodoo, but derivation. Correct. Um, which is different than hoodoo, which is different than santeria, which is different than... <laughs> there are so many offshoots. But in New Orleans, it's voodoo. And there, these appeasement offerings are more often going to be things like whiskey, unsalted meats, because everything's salted meat in New Orleans. I don't know. And they have their own version of a dumb supper. Because they had such prolonged exposure to Europeans, because... Well, that's a nice way of saying it. I'm saying it as nicely as possible, because the Europeans were assholes. Uh, forced exposure to yeah, Europeans. But, <laughs> right, but because this was their everyday... And because Vodun and Voodoo move to accommodate the gods or the ancestors or the spirits of a space, they began to really accept the folklore associated with several different European cultures. And in New Orleans, this European culture was French. There were also heavy influences from the Irish in that area. Yeah, there are these great versions of the jack story, which is instead is told from that African-American standpoint occurring in a more like in a swamp than a bog. Is the name the same? It's a jack-o'-lantern. And I mean, you have to contemplate. You really do have to stop and think about how very important passing on stories became to these people. Right, because for the longest time, African-Americans... You know, whether they be when they were enslaved or even after, I mean, God, up to now, they're denied or have a harder time getting the same education as the other European-descended people. Right. And that access to traditional Western education prevented a lot of these things from being written down. However, it really did help create a very rich tradition of oral transmission of stories. And because we're talking about voodoo, we're talking about New Orleans, it has to be said that the French settlers were Catholic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's my people. We got a basilica. <laughs> when you have this religion or practice that moves to accept the spirits of a place, they're going to accept Catholicism, but they're going to put their own spin on it. So... The ideas of Catholicism were incorporated into voodoo. They did not replace it. They did not change it. They came in to stand for other pre-existing ideas. And you'll see that with certain uh, saints being incorporated. You'll see that iconography, a saint statue has a certain look. And you'll see that repeated, but with more, with more of the themes from that religion. They began to intermingle and intermesh and create this new thing. And that's why we have the transformation from Vodun to Voodoo. Because it is based on that 
French Creole, Louisiana folk Catholicism, as well as this very distant West African religion. It's a living thing. It's changing. It's a very interesting mirror of culture. Yeah, New Orleans is one of those places that resist that kind of globalization. It kind of keeps its own ideas and celebrates it. Oh no, it likes being weird. I love that this slogan is keep Austin weird because I feel like New Orleans is just assumes it to be true. Yeah, someone the other day told me, I moved from San Francisco and I think that it's funny that people say, keep Austin weird. I'm like, oh, oh honey. (laughs) Bless your heart. Go to New Orleans. Get you some hate paint and go to New Orleans. Because there are only three cities in the United States. Everywhere else is Cleveland, New York, San Francisco, and New Orleans. Who said that? Uh, uh, Mark Twain. Mark Twain said that, so it must be true. St. Mark Twain. So New Orleans likes being weird. They like keeping in themselves. And to that end, they are one of the only American cities. I found it cited some places that they are the only American city where All Souls Day is practiced in a way that really reflects its European origins. And it's a city-sanctioned, citywide thing. And you'll see this in these massive cities of the dead, as they're called, these above-ground cemeteries. Would you like to tell our listeners why New Orleans has above-ground cemeteries? Um, Because it is below sea level, as you may have noticed when Hurricane Katrina flooded it. If you were to bury the bodies below the ground, they would just float up. When it flooded. So we make these little houses put the dead people in out of marble and things they're above ground and it really does look like a miniature landscape each grave looks like a house so they're called the cities of the dead and you'll see people coming to these cemeteries on all souls day usually november 2nd and placing flowers yellow chrysanthemums are particularly popular you'll also see people out working in the graveyard whitewashing the mausoleums whitewashing the vaults a very traditional catholic practice for all souls day they also place immortales which are wreaths they're very ornate i found an old source from round about turn of last century new orleans that said the parade of people going to the cemetery looks like a parisian fete he said there were fruit vendors and flower sellers outlining the streets hawking their wares, and everyone was wearing all their best attire. So this is a festive occasion. And New Orleans, again, is the place where you get ideas like the jazz funeral, where you have the second line. It's somber going toward the grave, and as you leave the grave, you celebrate the life of the person who's died and break out into joyous music. Right, the idea that we're celebrating our ancestors. It's very tied into that. And as I was researching, I ran across something that I'd never seen before. So apparently, there's one little bayou called Bayou Lacombe right outside New Orleans. And it is very isolated. And as far as anyone knows, it's the only place in Louisiana, and I'm going to guess one of the only places in the world where this happens. So people of Creole descent or people of various other African descents get together on All Souls Day. And they do something called the lighting of the graves. Long before there were roads in the area, torches and pine knots were used to light the way to the graves for boats. And this is because, again, most of the cemeteries are going to be located near bayous. Everything in Louisiana is pretty near a bayou. And people kind of cite the beginning of this tradition with a particular character. It's a priest named Adrian Roquette. He was born in New Orleans, and he was a priest and a poet and... 
author. And he was also, very importantly, the first white man to witness the native Choctaw tradition of the reunion with the dead. Oh, so now we're even pulling in Native American traditions into our ideas of Halloween and with our ideas of communing with the dead. Right. And so the Choctaws had their own traditions. I know that gets overlooked most of the time, but it happened. And they had this unique ceremony in which they were able to reunite with the dead. And Adrian Roquette, being a good Catholic and a good Louisianian, decided that he would just bring that on in to Catholicism. And so what they do is up to a month before All Souls Day, people go out and start cleaning the graveyard and preparing it for this night. And one local says, it's part of our religion. We can't get away from it. As Christians, we believe we're going to meet these people again in our next life. So we have to keep contact with them. So they're going out and they're preparing for this moment of reunion. And on All Souls Day, when the sun goes down, they light candles that just cover the graves. It is a blanket of light. Bonfiery, ball god light. Calling the spirits in. Right. And they believe that on All Souls Day, they can actually literally interact with their ancestors as the ancient traditions would tell us but these traditions are native american right this is something that is so common in all cultures we talked about this in asian cultures in the night marchers episode that you have these days where they put out things to kind of commune with the dead and it's just something that is so pervasive right and so in the middle of this this reunion with your ghost and in the native american tradition on this little bayou in louisiana you have priests come out and they say prayers for the living and the dead throw holy water on the graves and take part in it and it's sanctioned and it's fine and i think it's kind of awesome and amazing but there's one thing i wanted to read to you that one of the participants said and he says i always feel better when i leave there that night i've spent time with them it's thanksgiving Grief and happiness all at one time. Yeah, so we can see just how important it is for our culture to commune with our ancestors. But as America likes to do. We do? Yeah, we water things down. Mm -hmm. You know, the old idea of ghosts, these ancient ghosts embodying wisdom and a watchful eye, changes. And we're going to do something you may not like, or you may. Not sure. Going to blame the Victorians. I love to blame the Victorians. Okay. You know, because they're always looking for some weird historical idea to appropriate. We sure that's just the Victorians? Oh, they loved it. They were the major force. Well, that's when you get all the Volk culture and the collecting and the ideas of nationalism based on, yeah. Okay, fine. But they took the idea of Halloween and they were like, oh, this is such an Anglican idea. This is such a white people idea. <laughs> You're right. Halloween is so white. This is only British tradition and only for these upper class people to celebrate. So they say, keep calm, call your tenant. In a publication from that time period, 1881, St. Nicholas Magazine writes, Belief in magic is passing away, and the customs of All Hallows' Eve have arrived at the last stage, where they have become mere sport, repeated from year to year like holiday celebrations. Like holidays? How sad. It is sad because they're taking away that idea of our ancestors that we can interact with. like And commiserate with even. Yeah, that's actually a really good word. Okay, so it's removing our connection to our dead. Right. Our dead. Right. It's taking that away and saying, put it away. 
trot them out once a year. Right. And it's going to become part of our ideas that we love divination. We love to tell the future. That's what we're going to go for. Well, because we're Victorians and we're spiritualists. Let's have a seance. Let's have a seance. And they continue those ideas. And they continue the romance ideas and continue the ideas of spiritualism. But times changed. More of a new realism took place as a century moved on. Got over itself. Magazines and periodicals and ladies' magazines started to take more of an intellectual turn. And the idea of Halloween became more of a children's holiday. Okay. And it becomes more of that idea of what we have now and what we kind of talked about in the trick-or-treating episode. Oh, like you're too old to trick-or-treat. You're too old to dress up this year. You're too old to burn effigies, Timmy. Grow up. Carve a turnip. And that idea of ghosts changes so much to move towards more modern idea of it. That malevolent spirit haunting the house there to hurt you, as you'd see in modern horror movies. Well, okay, so the ghost has been badly disenfranchised. The ghost has been divorced of meaning and left in a place and not attached to people. And that's really, like, really sad. When you think of the ghost as a power source and a link to heritage, history, and identity. And then you dump it off in a forgotten house and say that it's only there because it's sad and it could move on if it were just a little smarter. Wow, you've really undermined a legend. You've really undermined a powerful idea. Right, you've undermined that idea of your ancestral spirits being there as part of you, as part of who you are. My mind goes to the Holy Ghost. You know, this is something we still say. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, right? It's this intercessor. It's the person coming between you and the divine or the the part of the divine being coming between you and the Father, the top. It's the part you can interact with. Yeah, it's your tangible link. And so we're going to take that away. We're going to take away this idea of a tangible link and put it in an old forgotten house and sanitize everything as much as possible. Make it different, make it scary, make it undesirable so that we can focus purely on the physical. Right, very American idea. So American. As we said. Oh, America. But, you know, as we talked about, the ideas of Halloween really incorporate so many different cultural traditions. And that is one of the things that fascinates me about it. And one of the things that makes it such an amazing holiday. Right, because early secularization, where it can be kind of taken out of the context of religion... And so it opens it up to more people. And the beliefs don't necessarily have to be in conflict in order to celebrate Halloween. It's like, oh, you do this thing, let's do this thing. Because no one remembers that it's connected to Catholicism or being Lutheran or being Choctaw or being African-American. No one knows where the ideas come from. They all just fall together on this day. And the only common thread that holds them together is the dead. And, you know, there's a really great tradition, and it's, it's become more popular recently, that still celebrates it, still celebrates our ancestral dead, and that is Dia de los Muertos. The Day of the Dead. And this is a Mesoamerican and Mexican tradition. And it is a celebration of the short nature of life and of death. You know, for ancient Mesoamericans, they were not two independent things because they're not. You know, they thought of death. They thought death was just a lead into a new life. But not in a reincarnation way, right? Like a 
being an ancestral spirit or being in heaven way. True, in whatever afterlife they had. Okay. And this is something that's been celebrated for thousands of years. The Aztecs, the Mayans, the Toltecs all had these ideas of celebrating a a day of the dead, of celebrating, you know, a god that represented the dead and the ancestors and the afterlife. Like the Aztecs even had a specific day in the ninth month of the calendar, which is interesting because it's like in August. So it's in that kind of harvest time Mm -hmm. that this is always associated with, always in that transition from life, from summer spring to that fall winter idea well and outside of the context of a season can't you see why the harvest would be a great metaphor for transitioning between growth life physical being to being fuel for your descendants it makes complete sense you're cutting down a living thing and taking it in in order to preserve life in order to keep going and growing yourself right it it fits so well even back in the day thousands of years ago these different cultures would have specific months dedicated to honoring the deceased based on whether it was the death of a child or an adult whether it was how they died, they'd have times to celebrate those that drowned or those that died in childbirth or those that died in warfare. And, but an important point is that you see in so many cultures is that the belief is the belief that the deceased would return. I think it's so interesting how people are grouped together, not by the stations they held in life, but the ways that they met their death. You know, is this, this is something you'll see throughout so many cultures, is this idea that death is the great equalizer. Because it's so true. I think about the death tarot card, which, you know, every time you see it put out, people say, oh, it's not bad, it just means change, which, first of all, so interesting, because people freak out when they see it, and you say, no, 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 it's just change, and then I feel like that's what every celebration is saying. But in the Rider weight deck, you have death as a skeleton on a horse, and then in front of him, you have, you know, a child, a woman, and a priest in rich robes. And they're all cowering before death, all kneeling and throwing their hands up because nothing can save them at this point. They're all the same. Death comes for all of us. Death is part of life. It is an important point to remember. Like he says, it is an equalizer. Is that a lot of ancient and older cultures realize. And we've come to fear death so much. Oh, just keep it away as long as possible. Let's just not think about that. Let's not talk about that. Let's not take our kids to the funeral. We're from Louisiana, and we keep our dead real close. It's it's unusual, I think, the amount of interaction that people have with their dead in Louisiana in particular. Right, because we keep a lot of those old traditions alive. And these old traditions in the Mesoamerican culture changed, as stories do. As you do. With the Spanish coming and, you know, nicely asking to stay. Oh, Right. If you let us stay here, we will give you these blankets. Would you like some blankets? The ones with smallpox. Just some blankets. And so, as Catholics are wont to do, they took the indigenous people's ideas and gods and incorporated into the Catholic ideas to make it easier for them to convert. So these rituals of worshiping the dead were changed to correspond with All Saints and All Souls Day. You're going to bring Hollow Mass back? And so you can think of that classic imagery of the Day of the Dead. What do you think of? Sugar skulls. 
Right. People with makeup on. Mm-hmm. As skeletons. Happy skeletons, though. Like, very Disney dancing bones. Right. Because death is not something to fear. No, it's something to laugh at? Mock? It's something to... I don't think it's only a mockery. It's not. It, it's it's accepting. It's acceptance. And so you have the idea of the skeletons and the skulls obviously representing the dead. And the, an image associated with this is Le Calavera, which was something done by Jose Posado. And it is this Katrina. And she's this beautiful kind of skeletal image dressed in modern Victorian wear. And this was done in kind of 1910, 1913. And it, it was done as a mockery. Looking at the high-class Mexican people and their need for societal advancement, their need for taking that kind of new idea and trying to kind of whiten their faces with makeup. Right, the abandonment of maybe some of the older ideas about connection to history and heritage and more of a rush to assimilate into a kind of top-down, white-influenced culture. And like you said, there's not a taboo with death for the Day of the Dead. They will take skeletons and skulls and dress them as their ancestors, as their beloved dead. Right, and this comes in the form of if your grandfather was a doctor, you might get a skeleton and put it in scrubs and go put it on his grave or on an ofrenda. And so... Talk about the ofrenda, and so that's part of this huge preparation for the Day of the Dead. So weeks in advance, people will visit the cemeteries and clean the graves and decorate them and bring flowers. And there's a specific flower that's kind of a a local marigold. Mm -hmm. And it is a beautiful flower, and they use it to decorate the graves and also to build these large arches and decorations for the area. So you can see some just beautiful imagery if you look into it of these graveyards just covered in these yellow gold flowers. Right, and even in New Orleans, where we were talking about All Souls Day, the gold or yellow chrysanthemum is one of the favorite flowers, and it's very similar to this marigold. And so, again, you have these bright colors being used, this gold or orange color, and they believe that it sort of lit the way or attracted the souls of their deceased loved ones like fire, maybe? Like Right, there's yeah. a, there's an attraction. There's a trying to draw them in. You're not scared of them. And in the Day of the Dead celebrations, they'll use these petals to make a pathway. And the scent and color are said to attract the spirits. And you want to lead them from the cemetery. You want to lead them to your home. You want to invite them in. Mm-hmm. Because they're not malevolent. They're, they're welcomed across the threshold. They're your grandfather. They're your people. And so one way of celebrating your people is an ofrenda, which literally translates to an offering, but is considered like an altar. And so this would be a table with usually a tablecloth over it and several important elements. The four major elements include water, a pitcher or a glass of water in it, and it's there to quench the thirst of the souls from a long journey. You have fire, which is represented by the candles. You have Wind, which is represented by the Papel Picado, um, which are the beautiful punched paper decorations that you can see around at this time. Right. They're usually made of brightly colored tissue paper and intricate designs are punched out in 
shapes uh, that depict common iconography for this day. So you might have skeletons or you might just have geometric patterns depending on the level of skill of the person who's punching said paper. Are you good at punching paper? I probably could be. Give me a minute. And then the final element is earth, which is often represented by food. Earthly pleasures, earthly delights. Right, and so one common thing seen is the panda muerta. Bread of the dead. Right. And this is made of flour, butter, sugar, eggs, orange pill, anise, and yeast. And it's adorned with strips of dough to simulate bones. And at the top is a small round piece of dough that symbolizes a teardrop. So you've, you've shed your tears for the dead. And it can be other food too. Mole, fruit, chocolate, atole, but cigars... You can put whiskey or tequila out. Right. And I, in my understanding is that these individual variations are based very much on the character or taste of the person who's died. Right. You will put you can put out the food of the deceased. Their favorite foods of the deceased. Right. And you can also put out pictures. Photographs are almost ubiquitous now. You know, this tradition was originally very localized in more central and southern Mexico and became a larger part of the northern Mexico culture when it was established as a national holiday in the 1960s. Right, and that was a time of prosperity, a relative prosperity for Mexico, and it was a time when they were very much searching for a national identity. And so creating holidays and national celebrations is one way that people solidify that national identity. It's something everybody is celebrating. And in this case, you're celebrating your ancestors. That implies even more. And so as this became established in northern Mexico, you would see these celebrations in the border cities in the United States, such as like in Texas. You don't say. In Arizona and in California. But as the Chicano movement has gained steam and the idea of this kind of Latin pride and pride in your culture, it's spread a lot more. And it's enabled Latinos to remember their personal and communal antepasados or ancestors. And it strengthened their sense of historical past. Kay Turner and Pat Jasper say these offerings in the United States show a mix of the popular with more of the traditional materials get sacred and secular personal with national and political agendas and so many artists are taking this and using it as a political statement i mean, students at the talcott fine arts and museum academy created a friend as dealing with immigration titled death of a dream and they incorporated objects that might be needed for an immigrant's dangerous journey. Um, and they would take like the, the Papa Picado and surround it with barbed wire. So this incredibly light element that's supposed to represent wind and freedom is chained down. Or... Right, they'd put chain link fences completely around the offerenda. So that the dead couldn't reach them. Yeah, and so it's interesting how it's kind of changed and how it's been incorporated into modern society. Ultimately, some people might look onto this and they might see sugar skulls and they might see these altars to the dead and they might see it as this really disturbing graphic idea. But it's it's not. No. It's a beautiful idea that the Mexican community has of celebrating their dead of celebrating their ancestors but really this culture this mexican culture has such an interesting relationship with the dead and with death 
Death personified, in fact. So within a lot of ballads written by Mexican artists, you see this kind of recurring theme of life is worthless. Many people say that Mexicans don't care about death. This is an idea cited by Octavio Paz. He says that they make fun of it and they have unparalleled levels of mocking death and its symbols. He goes on to say that in a locked world with no way out, in a place where everything is death, death is the only thing that is valuable. We affirm something negative. Skulls made of sugar or tissue paper, colorful skeletons are popular representations, always making fun of life. We decorate our houses with skulls. We eat bread that imitates bones. We amuse ourselves with songs and jokes of the bald death laughing. And so taking this idea that death can't be taken seriously because it's all too real, we move into a really interesting subculture within the Mexican identity, and that is the cult of Santa Muerte. So that would mean Saint Death. Holy Death. Right. Yes. A lot of things I'm going to be citing throughout this uh, discussion of Santa Muerte come from a book called The Origins, History, and Secrets of Mexican's Folk Saint by Gustava Vasquez Lozano. She's a very controversial figure in Mexico. She's presented as a Catholic saint. She has that very classic iconography. Right. She wears robes similar to the Virgin of Guadalupe, normally in green and gold, though they're changed for different occasions. So while she appears to be a saint... She's utterly haunting and disturbing. Why is that? Because she's a skeleton. Okay, so similar to those ideas of the representation of death. You might have the sugar skulls on Dias de los Muertos, but Santa Muerte is not grinning, not festive, not decorated. She's a bare skeleton in the robes of a saint. In the robes of the Holy Mother. She's almost a mirror image of the Holy Mother. And by that, I mean everything in reverse. So she is death personified. The majority of depictions, except a very small number of very modern interpretations, identify her as female. And she has nicknames, little pet names throughout Mexico. And they're beautiful, the skinny, cute girl, little mother, and virgin, among others, white girl. She gets called that a lot. And that reflects the nature of the relationships that people feel that they have with her. And it's very familial, very familiar sort of a bottom-up organization of theology where people relate to her first on a personal level and then that's adopted into this larger schema of religion and people relate to her in this way because she does not judge that's not her job you can ask her for anything and that kind of access has created a cult following people who will go to her and ask favors so I mean, when I think of cult, I think of like your classic cult, like compounds and this just really abnormal beliefs, end of times. Okay, right, well, it is a little abnormal, but it's not compoundy. You get to choose whether you stay or go. Your interactions with Santa Muerte are very much like on a case-by-case basis, like as need arises. There's not really an organized fellowship between people who follow her. It's more individualistic than most cults there's not really a spokesperson there's not really a charismatic leader who's telling you that helter skelter is coming it's more of a i mean just like not to sound too like evangelical but it's more about a personal relationship with this figure so she is it's a cult figure but she doesn't really have an organized cult if that makes sense 
And you do get some people who come out and want to be the charismatic leader, who want to take charge of the Santa Muerte movement because it has a lot of steam behind it. But they're sort of regarded as like storefront preachers and kind of come and go. And there's not one that is just really universally seen as the mouthpiece for her power. So you say she's often represented like the Lady of Guadalupe, like kind of in their saintly imagery, that iconography. Does she have other iconography? Well, she often will carry a sickle, like the Grim Reaper. She rides a horse sometimes, like the Death Tarot card. She can be seen holding the world because she'll comfort everyone. Or a set of scales, which are... To judge. Right, but they're always balanced. Because everyone's equal. Correct. In the eyes of death. She also holds an hourglass. Because time and death come for us all. Right. Life is short. Your time's running out. Your time's always running out. So throughout Mexico, there are altars to Santa Muerte that have been set up in public areas. A lot of times people have them in their homes as well. And they view the public altars as sort of a place to charge their private altars. They'll bring their statues to public sphere to take them back home and have them, you know, endowed with that energy. In both the public and private versions of the altars, you'll see a very good sample of common offerings. And those might include candles or sweets, tequila, flowers, even joints, tobacco. Sounds like she's like party saint. She is a party saint. She is a saint of the people. She likes the things the people like. And the candles can have kind of that voodoo idea of the different colors representing different things you're asking for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, people's opinions of her and ideas of her differ wildly case by case. There are some common elements, basic agreed upon things that resurface again and again. So she's a spiritual being of objective existence. She's there. She's real. She's almost tangible. Right. You cannot deny that death is there. Right. She can grant you a miracle. And you get these miracles. Is praying like another saint? Mm, sort of. So unlike saints, she does not make a moral judgment on what you want. So you could ask her to win when you go to the casino. And she's not going to tell you gambling is wrong she's gonna say all right what are you gonna give me so she has that bargaining yes and so some people see her as very diabolical because in order to get a favor you have to give a favor and if your offering is pleasing she will grant you what you want and does not judge it to be good or bad just yes or no She's also seen as very vengeful. If a devotee promises her something and does not deliver on said promise, doesn't take it well. And she favors people kind of on the fringes or margins of society. So who would that include? Well, drug traffickers, but also people from like the trans community or anyone from the LGBTQ community in Mexico. People who have relatives in prison, people who have just gotten out of prison, people who are in prison. And in order to have her see you, recognize you, and grant you favors, you can't fear her. You have to accept her. If you fear death, it will not favor you. You must adopt her as your family member. You must invite her into your home. So death must become part of you. Part of your life. Because it is. Right. But you have to accept it. And you have to honor it. And embrace it. Yes. People say hers is the most holy and sad work, and she expects to be respected for doing it. She's seen as a female figure of authority. But beyond that, 
The idea of her varies so much. No one can really agree on what kind of spiritual elemental being she is. Some people think she's like an archangel. Some people think that she's a soul trapped in purgatory trying to grant as many favors as possible so she can get out soon. Some people see her as a demon because of that kind of diabolical bargaining that she does. So all of these elements are so interesting. That kind of acceptance of death that you have to incorporate her into your life. But also that kind of idea of having to make a deal to get what you want is the only way you're able to get this. I mean, we've talked about, you know, the kind of people that really flock to her. But I mean, it is interesting that this has become so popular in recent years. The most important thing to understand about Santa Muerte is that she's born from a culture of poverty. Her first appearance in written documents is in 1961 in the novel Lejillos de Chanchez by Oscar Lewis. A quote from that novel by Oscar Lewis. Oscar! Oh, throw the peel. Life around here is raw. It is more real than among people with money. After a while, even death itself doesn't frighten us. And people speculate that in this environment of extreme poverty, this cult may have begun around the 1950s. But there's really no way to tell. Right, but it's become massively popular in the last 20, 30 years, especially related to the drug cartels. Well, that's because the drug cartel in Mexico has become massively powerful. After the fall of the Colombian cartels in the mid-90s. Yeah, that's our fault. Yeah, we kind of did that. Sorry, guys. The Mexican cartels became more powerful and began exercising said power in really uncomfortable ways. For the majority of people in Mexico who are not involved with the drug trade. And to illustrate the kind of power that's associated with this, the Cali cartel is called the most powerful crime syndicate of all time. More than the Sopranos? More than the Sopranos. They're likened to the KGB. And the economy has been erratic for years. And there's a huge amount of just really internalized terror created by the drug cartels and their willingness to commit violence. In response to this massive growth and power within this illicit industry, the government got its stuff together and decided to crack down on drugs. Narcotics specifically, but everything. During the mid-90s, the populations of all of Mexico's prisons grew by 30%. It's a massive increase in people, and probably people from especially that lower socioeconomic background. Right. Now, when you have a massive amount of disenfranchised people who believe that they are unjustly incarcerated and feel vengeful, the best thing to give them is an icon to rally around. Right? I'm guessing that's what Santa Moreta became. She did. Because there were so many people in such concentrated areas, prisons, her popularity exploded. And word of her existence and power spread very quickly. And the interesting thing to note is that this growth didn't occur in the poorest neighborhoods. It didn't occur in the most violent neighborhoods. It occurred in neighborhoods where people left there had relatives who were incarcerated. So a direct tie, a direct tie with this, people that are put in the path of death. Well, that's true. But you could say 
that that includes people in the armed services, that that includes people who volunteer at the fire department, that that includes, but it's. But that it's been found that that's true. That is true. Those people more frequently have a belief in Santa Marta. But this kind of growth is directly linked to high rates of incarceration. And I believe that it has more to do with people who continue to live who feel they have nothing to lose than people who feel that they might lose their life. Yeah, I mean, this directly links to that appropriation that we see by the drug cartels. That link can't be ignored. And I know that coming from the perspective that we do where things like the satanic panic and like cult sacrifice and like preschool scares and all that, we have been so indoctrinated as skeptics as people who take things with a grain of salt to say like oh there's no way no santa muerta does have direct ties to the drug cartel that can't be ignored and also direct ties to ritualistic killings very true and i read an interesting paper by a dr bunker which when i first read it i thought it said debunker and i was like this is fake this fake (laughs) y'all but dr bunker wrote a paper for the fbi on santa muerta and ritualistic murder And he cited about 15 incidents where they found things like blood smeared all over a Santa Muerta altar in someone's home or heads, like decapitated heads from humans sitting on a Santa Muerta altar. And it's like, it might be incidental. It's impossible to tell. These people might have been murdered anyway, but there is something thing there there is some link it's like oh we would have killed him anyway but here you go santa Muerte, to have the head like the drug cartel hitman daniel arismende lopez he was also called el mocadejes meaning the ear chopper he was captured after kidnapping and mutilating over 180 people that's a lot of people it's a few it's i a haven't few. talked to 180 people in the last you know 10 years well that's your agoraphobia but they did find an altar in his house and whenever he was eventually captured and put in prison they even allowed him to move this altar into his cell his capture was a major victory for the mexican government and that it was highly publicized in national media and the coverage of the santa muerta altar being found in his home was pervasive. And when that was moved to his prison cell, you know that he's coming in as kind of a celebrity prisoner, and you know that this weird thing he does is going to be a curiosity among people within the prison, and it's going to spread. So this is a major media coverage incident, and this is also a major kerfuffle within a prison, which is going to get a lot of people really interested in this cult. And I am calling it a cult here because I believe as it relates to the narcotics movement and industry within the Mexican country and some of the Gulf Coast as well, it really is culty. Like as much work as it takes to get into the cartel, it's become kind of co-opted and associated with the process of being in this gang. So I think that is probably a little more compoundy, a little more Charles Manson-y, right? Right, and you see a really big association with the Gulf Coast trafficking groups. You know, there's a huge spread of the worship, idolatry of Santa Muerta along the kind of drug trafficking routes. You see altars set up along roadsides on heavily traversed areas that are known to be used by cartels. You see the replacement of statues of the Virgin of Guadalupe with Santa Muerta. There have been very 
old, very well-revered, kind of like roadside altars set up to the Virgin that have been destroyed where Santa Muerta's statue has been erected in its place. Right. And also these Santa Muerta altars have been destroyed by the Mexican government. Absolutely. Related to their association with the cartels. Right. In northern Mexico in 2009, about 40 statues or altars of Santa Muerta were destroyed by the armed services in an effort to kind of curtail the interest of the cartels. Right. And Calderon is the one that issued that decree to destroy these altars because of their association. And the cartels saw this as a holy war. Right. They declared it a holy war and they said, we're not going to take it like D. Snyder. Well, we do see more ritual murders associated with it, like in 2012 in Sonora. This is a very well-covered incident, and because there is so much documentation, I'm going to go with it. My skeptic pants will not let me say that it is 110% verified that this was the intent of the people, except there were photographs, except that the people involved said that's why they did it, except that they found the bodies on the altar. Let me tell you what happened. So in Sonora in 2012, they found three bodies on a Santa Muerta altar. And it was a 54-year-old woman and two 10-year-old boys who had been kidnapped in the area. And their wrist and throats had all been hacked with axes. And they'd been allowed to bleed out into like some sort of receptacle, it didn't say. And then that blood was painted over the Santa Muerta altar. And this was done by a poor family the men in the family are characterized uh, by neighbors as trash pickers, which means that they would go through trash and look for, I guess, like aluminum or whatever to turn in for scrap. And the women were prostitutes. It's a very low socioeconomic class of person. They were not associated with organized crime, but they just wanted the protection that was afforded by this relationship, this offering they were making to Santa Muerta. And you see in the media covered as the saint of drug traffickers and the patron of hitmen. And if you talk to people in this culture, they'll tell you, don't talk about that. Don't look into it. It just brings you bad luck. Like good upstanding citizens will tell you not to look into Santa Muerta? That's what happened to me. The word of mouth is strong with this one. Not to make too much of a counterpoint, but there are people who have just adopted Santa Muerta as part of their pre-existing pantheon of saints, where they understand her as sort of a folk saint, where they see her as a relatable intercessor. And to that point, there's a quote from one follower that says, I believe in the Santa Muerta more than God, because she is more realistic. No matter what you do, you're going to die. And the Santa Muerta will be the last thing you see in this life. And yeah, so you can see that attraction that people would have for the saint. She's just this morally ambiguous character. You can see how a drug cartel could take her on as their patron saint. You can also see how people in these terrible situations, in poverty, could also see her as an important figure. Right, and they'll cite that their main attraction to her is her moral ambiguity. You could ask her for things that you could never ask another saint for. One follower says she is fair. She makes no difference between the good and the bad, but accepts everyone equally, like a mother. For her, all of us, rich or poor, are equal, because we are all skeletons inside. As this image reminds us, you don't ask her for miracles, you ask her for favors. 
So look at the difference there. Like, let's parse that for a second. Let's go into some words. You don't ask her for miracles, which are the work of gods. You ask her for favors. Or you've got to make that deal with her. You've got to offer something. But if I wanted you to do something for me, what would I be asking for? A Pers- favor. A favor. Person to person. So she's a very relatable figure. And some people describe the way that you deal with Santa Muerta as a tranza. So what's that? Difficult to say. Um, there's really not a good English translation. Let's talk around it until we get there. So it's like a deal, bartering. It's morally ambiguous. It, this is a. This doesn't just have to do with her, though. This is a bigger idea in Mexican culture. It's a an offer you can't refuse, right? It's like a a trade you make with someone. Like, hey, I'll help you with that. But don't ask how I got it. Yes, very much. Like, it would be very bad form if you were participating in this kind of dealing to ask, like, oh, well, uh, where'd you get it? Or, oh, uh, well, you got any papers that go with it? Or Again, it's that idea that she's kind of could be seen as diabolical. Yes, absolutely. Because in diabolical magic or black magic, when you're dealing with an entity, you give it something, you make promises, you make sure there are no loopholes because it can't be trusted. It's volatile. It's a very volatile force. And she has that nature about her too. And so you can see why she's associated with outlaws, with outcasts, with the fringes of society. People who feel abandoned by their government, abandoned by the church. One of my favorite things from that book is when a street vendor told the interviewer, Gustavo, she says to him, the skinny understands because she's a cabrona like us. What's that mean? Cabrona? Yeah. Bitch. Nice. And so she is. She's tough. She's streetwise. She's not going to take your little shit prayers in exchange for some big favor. You know, she's smarter than that. And so that's admired. And, you know, any any group of, like, disenfranchised people who have to be on their game all the time and have to kind of, like, look out for themselves. And that kind of streetwise, street-savvy ideology comes from a place of fear. And this is actually, if you think about it, kind of a cult based on fear. Yeah, it's like fear and acceptance. One researcher, Anna Shashina, from the Institutio de Gestalt in Italy, says that it's a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. When you feel your life is in danger, and that danger comes from someone who somehow has the control, one possible way to behave is to submit to that person, win her favor, and she will no longer be threatening. And so people are constantly asking for these favors. They're asking for something from her. They might be asking for help with something. They might be asking for help with love. They might be asking for help with revenge. And frequently they're asking just for her to stay away. Devotion to her keeps her away, which is hella interesting. I mean, so interesting. So, I mean, this is definitely a great example of a folk saint. It's someone that has been accepted by the people, the Volk, mm-hmm. as the Grimms would say. Bottom-up movement. And it's been incorporated into the Catholic traditions. Oh, no. The Catholic traditions have been cast upon it. I think that it's very fair to say that this was done in an effort to give her some sense of legitimacy within the larger context of culture. Well, I can see that. So what does the Catholic Church have to say about this? Not a lot of nice things. Oh, really? Oh, really? 
For example, Father Gianfranco Ravisi says that everyone is needed to put the brakes on this phenomenon, including families, churches, and society in its totality. This cult is a celebration of devastation and hell. He goes on to call the cult narco-idolatrous worship. And you can see how its incorporation with the narco groups can really give it a bad rap. In many areas in Mexico, it's sort of seen as a symbol of anti-government pro-narco propaganda. It's been completely co-opted. And again, the Catholic Church lashes out when Father Ezekiel Sanchez in Chicago says, I'm concerned about it because it's an aberration. It's a misunderstanding of faith. At the same time, I can understand why it's growing. Many people, especially Mexican immigrants, are feeling that institutions are abandoning them and are grasping for spiritual help wherever they can. When they come to me with Santa Muerta, I'm not interested in why they worship her. I'm more interested to know how they got there. And that is such an interesting idea that the culture and society and economics are pushing people that way. Well, I think it's interesting because it's a person who is very much involved with the organized religion. I mean, it's a Catholic priest saying, like, I see, I see why they're reaching out. I see that they've been abandoned and I want to help. Like, he sees it as a cry for help. It's such an important idea of why. Why are people taking this on as their patron saint? Why are people idolizing this? The symbol of death, which we've talked about, the idea of death is not a bad thing. It's not something we should fear. So the culture is rife for an elevation, a reverence of the personification of death. Because we don't fear death, death isn't bad. So it starts there, I think. But then you have the prevalence of death. For example, since 2007, 164,000 people have died violently in some action related to drug trafficking in Mexico. To put it in perspective, that's more people than have died in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. That's an amazing, that's an astounding number of people that have died related to this. It's really hard to fathom. In addition to that, you have an economy that's had essentially no growth in the last 15 years. Poverty line has not moved. The divorce rates are at the highest level since the Mexican government began taking stats. The families are dissolving. People are being incarcerated in giant numbers. People are dying. People are being killed violently. Deaths everywhere. Right, and you see this compared to other cults. You see it compared to these cults of crisis. It's like, you are the chosen ones, enigmatic leader. It is drawing people in, saying, you are going to go up to the UFOs, put on your white Reeboks. They were Nikes. Whatever. And this is different. It is a cult of fear, but it's not concerned with the coming apocalypse. And maybe that has to do with the idea that it's been so bad for so long. You know, the end's nowhere in sight. It's as bad as it's going to get, and it's going to stay that way. Right, it's a cult of desperation. So the idea that we would want to reach out to death, reach out to the dead, in a hopeful way, that's just a story, right? Yeah, that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.